Another interesting aspect of the Patterns of Care survey related to the use of adjuvant chemotherapy and specifically the emerging use of the Oncotype DX assay to select patients for this treatment. I met with Dr. Ravden to discuss this issue, and he began by commenting on a survey question that suggested that many surgeons believe too much chemotherapy is currently being utilized in the adjuvant setting. In many ways, the surgeons are right in that there's a lot more chemotherapy that's being used than is actually benefiting patients. And medical oncologists, driven in part by the guidelines and by their own experience, are actually treating broad categories of patients at increasingly low risk who are, in fact, most of whom have been cured surgically. And so a lot of people are getting chemotherapy that has no possibility of causing them benefit. Now, another thing that we saw in the survey, it was very interesting. And, you know, one of the initial testers, a surgeon who took our survey just to make sure, you know, we do this usually for a few people just to make sure the questions are worded correctly. You know, we ask them for their qualitative impression. And the surgeon writes a note saying, you're going to be very disappointed about what you see because the questions that you're asking, the level of complexity in terms of the systemic therapy questions most surgeons are not going to be able to answer. He said he was in a rural setting, and, you know, he just looks to the oncologist. And that's really not what we found here. What we found is that more than half, maybe three-quarters of these people seem to be pretty comfortable with a lot of these systemic issues. Does that surprise you, or do you think that's what you're seeing in your own situation? Actually, that doesn't surprise me. And it doesn't surprise me because the NSABP has long championed adjuvant chemotherapy. In fact, the first adjuvant chemotherapy trials were done by the NSABP as cooperative trials in this country. And I think that's brought to the attention of a lot of surgical oncologists what these regimens and it familiarized them with their use. I think also, you know, Bernie Fisher has such a profound effect on the thinking about this disease. And he always said, you know, this is a systemic disease. The key to whether these people live or die is not going to be what kind of surgery you do. And so I think he really pushed surgeons to understand these issues. Yeah, I think that like the great kind of dynamic tension in surgery is in breast cancer is whether or not it's a local disease versus a systemic disease. And I think it's partly both, actually. And we just did a Patterns of Care survey of medical oncologists where we presented 20 different clinical scenarios in breast cancer and asked them to rank based on how often they saw them, how important they thought it was, et cetera, et cetera. And the number one of the 20, the most common one by far, was node negative, ER positive, HER2 negative, you know, sort of the classic, quote, oncotype situation or where it was in terms of a common situation. And that was a clinical scenario we presented to these surgeons, a 1.3 centimeter tumor, ER positive, HER2 negative. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen in terms of the thinking within the breast cancer research community about this subset of people over the last, say, 10 years? Well, I think that over the last 10 years, and specifically over the last two years, this has become an area of contention and enormous expectation. And that is that the idea that we'll be able to identify patients 
who are going to get particularly low degrees of benefit from chemotherapy. And there are two lines of arguments that really are going to revolutionize, I think, our treatment of low-risk ER-positive patients. One of the lines of arguments is the line of argument that molecular markers will allow us to do the multi-gene assays. And, for instance, in NSCBB B20, was a trial in which the oncotype assay was shown to really, for half the patients, node-negative patients who had low oncotype scores, that those patients were not getting any real benefit from chemotherapy. And I guess uh, we should say these were ER-positive patients who were going to get hormones, tamoxifen, and then the question is, are they going to get chemo on top of it? Right, that's exactly the question. And looking at that single study, you would argue that there was no evidence that that subset was benefiting. And then more recently, this year at the Breast Cancer Symposium, there was a node-positive trial, one of the Southwest Oncology Group trials that also looked at the idea of everybody gets hormonal therapy, tamoxifen, then they're randomized to whether or not they receive chemotherapy. And in that trial, again, the molecular signature, the low-risk molecular signature, identified patients who were not getting any risk reduction from chemotherapy. So let's focus on the issue of whether to give chemotherapy, not just what kind. And in terms of the, again, classic situation of the node-negative, ER-positive, HER2-negative situation, what we're seeing and what we've seen with oncologists is a major uptake in the last few years in the use of Ocotype. And in terms of surgical investigators, literally 90% of them would use it in that situation. The surgeons in practice, you know, pretty close to it, 70%. But another issue is there is another test out there that is attempting to look at the same thing, the so-called mammoprint. Can you talk about what that is and how that compares to Oncotype? Okay. The mammoprint is a multi-gene assay. It's a 70-gene assay. And it has also undergone similar steps, and that is the similar step being an initial development phase with a subset of patients that was used to basically develop the parameters. And of course, you can always overfit the parameters, so you have to do a validation phase. The validation phase of the mammoprint assay was a lot different than the SAPP validation phase. And that's because of fundamental difference between the kinds of tissue you can use in the two assays. The mammoprint assay was developed using frozen, unfixed tissue. And that was argued that the mRNA is intact, you're not working with fragments. That hasn't turned out to be a really important issue with the Oncotype assay. But the other side of it, the idea that you have to use intact mRNA has been limiting for the mammoprint assay in that they haven't been able to go to randomized trials and look at patients who were randomly selected to get or not to get adjuvant therapy. So their data only relates to prognosis. There's no data that relates to the assay's predictive ability to identify patients who might particularly benefit from therapy. And I think one of the things that's very powerful about the Oncotype assay is if you get a low recurrence score, not only are you have a better baseline prognosis, but the relative bite out of that that would be taken by chemotherapy is also less. So it kind of builds one on top of the other, arguing that these patients should probably not be treated. For the mammoprint assay, the reason why I think it has not had as wide acceptance in the U.S. is that you have to be set up 
to basically capture and preserve fresh tissue, which is somewhat problematic in these small tumors where the pathologist may or may not want to give up a major part of the tumor so that it's just not been as easily developed. Now, I should say something about the studies that are being used to validate these more widely. There are two large studies, one in North America and one in Europe. The one in North America is looking at the Oncotype DX21 gene assay. And that's a trial called the Taylor X trial. And in that study, patients who have not yet had an Oncotype done are admitted to the study. An Oncotype is done. And then if the Oncotype is low, the patient is not treated, is assumed to be at such a low benefit. I should say also that these are ER-positive patients who are going to be getting hormonal therapy. And so what we're talking and about is negative. treatment. Yeah, hormonal node-negative patients. Virtue negative also. Yeah, that these patients, the question really in this trial is whether or not they should get chemotherapy. If so they have intermediate score. If they have range intermediate scores. score, then what was done for those patients is they're randomized between either getting chemotherapy or not. And if they have a high recurrence score, most clinicians would argue that these are the patients that are higher risk and get more benefit. And so all those patients are going to receive treatment. And I might say that I was a little surprised because when we asked the surgeons, have you heard of the Taylor X study? Of course, the investigators, almost all of them had, but only about a quarter of the surgeons in practice had heard about it. And the thing about that study is it's not so much whether you put patients on or not, but as what you just said, that it's a major national cooperative group study in which the treatment algorithm is driven by the recurrence score. Right. So if they have a high recurrent score in this study, they're going to get chemo. So it kind of sort of tells you something about the way people view the validity of the test, I think. Does that make sense? Well, I think what it is is that people are putting patients on study, obviously believe that the assay is well validated. And I think if you take a look at the national guideline statements about the Oncotype DX, you see that that is actually also agreed with by the guideline review committees. I was going to mention that because there are two major guideline committees that have supported Oncotype fairly recently, which is one is the NCCN, mm-hmm. and the other is the ASCO Tumor Marker Committee that published in the JCO. And both of them, as you say, endorsed or supported the use of Oncotype outside of a protocol setting. I was kind of interested, though, in the NCCN. What they did was they said, if the tumor is greater than a centimeter, okay, yes, for sure. But if it's less than a centimeter, specifically, it'd have to be between 0.6 and 1. It would have to also have unfavorable features. And there are a couple of things about that. One is, what about these smaller tumors? Do you agree it's not as well defined? And what about the larger tumors, the two, three centimeter tumors? You know, does Oncotype really have a role there, too? I think in the small tumors, it does have a role, in my opinion. But one of the limitations in the small tumors is when you take a look at how the assay was developed, it was developed from NSAVP trials B14 and B20 largely. And there were relatively few patients in those trials with tumors that were 10 millimeters and less in size. Those patients were allowed on the trials, but there were a relatively minor percentage. So you could argue that for those patients, we're less sure that the Oncotype assay is really valid. I actually think the Oncotype assay is valid because I think it's intellectually something that is appealing and almost certainly true that there should be a gene signature that allows you to tell the difference between low-risk 
and high risk, you know, basically high proliferation state, low proliferation state cancers. And I would expect that to be true for both small node negative patients, larger node negative patients, and also as node positive patients as well. And I think that the evidence is bearing out that view. Now, the one part of it that needs to be a little bit better defined is whether or not other factors should be used in addition to the oncotype assay. And all things being equal, you'd say that a cancer with a given signature that had been there long enough to already involve regional nodes almost certainly has to have a worse prognosis. And you see that actually in trials like Southwest Oncology Group 8814. It was a node-positive, ER-positive study. And for patients with a low recurrence score, they had a substantially higher risk of recurrence than the patients from the NICBP trials where the patients had all been node negative. So that if you're going to be using the recurrence score eventually in node positive patients, you're going to have to put some kind of modifying term in to adjust the recurrence scores for the fact that patients node positive. I want to tease out a little bit more about this node positive thing since it's so new, but just to get back briefly to the guidelines thing, Neither of these guideline statements supported or endorsed the use of the print. And actually, just before I got on the plane to come here, I pulled off a couple letters. The editor just got e-published on JCO on the last day or so, I guess, where there were a couple letters from, I think, people who had been involved in the development of the print. you know, arguing why was it that print wasn't in there. One of the arguments that they made was that, quote, print was FDA-approved and that Oncotype wasn't. Now, there was a rebuttal letter from the authors of the guidelines thing talking about this issue of FDA and assays as opposed to FDA and drugs where you have really a, quote, approval mechanism. What about this issue of the FDA and these kinds of tests? Is it really relevant? Yeah. The FDA has repeatedly actually disappointed me, at least, in its process for devices and tests like this being classified as a device rather than a drug. If you go to the FDA with a drug, We're all familiar with the idea that the drug actually has to be shown not only to do what it says it does, but whatever it says it does to also cause some measurable clinical benefit for the patient. Now, the FDA on a device just says that it has to physically do what it says it does. It measures whatever. But you don't have to actually demonstrate that that allows you to identify patients who truly are benefiting from the test. And I actually am very critical of the print assay. I do not think it is the same class as the Oncotype assay. And I should say as part that I have actually consulted a bit on both assays. I and, imagine so, because the Mindex study, which right. I'm sure you're going to talk about, that's looking at print includes your right. adjuvant and one line score right. as part of the trial design. And, and they're valid. Did they talk to you about that? Oh, yes. Oh, really? Okay, I actually, I've so. supplied them with the software. And I think that the trial is a perfectly valid trial because I think that classic pathologic factors may do as well as the mammoprint. It's a fascinating study, too, in that what they look at is, I guess they calculate the patient's risk of recurrence based on adjuvant. Right. And then they assess what it is based on mammoprint. If they both say the same thing, then that's the treatment. And if there's a discrepancy, they get randomized to chemo versus not. It's kind of an unusual, interesting design. Right. 
Well, I think that there's a direct comparison between two assays, and I think that I'm very comfortable with that. Their validation assay or paper illustrates some of the weaknesses of their assay. One of them is that instead of taking a clinical trial population with a well-defined treatment and well-defined follow-up, What they did is they got tumors from five different centers that had been retrospectively collected and then did the assay on it. And they got approval because they showed that patients with high mammoprint versus low mammoprint scores did differently. It was a prognostic test. But what they obscured in the paper was that in their index studies used to develop the test, the relative risk conferred for high versus low was five. Now, that's a very powerful prognostic factor and would be very useful. In fact, in their validation study, it was 2.3. Now, 2.3 isn't so different than other things that we use all the time that are single-gene assays and don't cost $4,000. So I would just say that if you take a look at their assay, their validation for prognosis isn't as strong, and there's no information whatsoever about whether or not it's predictive of relative benefit of different therapies. Now, one thing that is different is a mammocrine will look at ER negative. What about that? Actually, I'm not impressed by that. And the reason why I'm not impressed by that is that, first of all, you never see it broken out for high versus low in ER negatives and ER positives. And the reason why, in my opinion, you probably never see that broken out is that very few patients are ER negative have low mammoprint scores. So only about 5% of patients, so that basically if you're ER negative, you know already that you have a high mammoprint score. Kind of like HER2 positive. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's even more so. Really? And so I don't think the test is really, although they say, well, of course, we developed our assay in both ER negative and ER positive patients. I don't think they actually went and then did subset analyses to show that it was working in both subsets, just that it was working on average in both subsets. I want to ask you a little bit more about the node-positive archetype presentation because it's very new. You know, it's a different concept, and people, I think, are still kind of scratching their heads about it. If you can talk a little bit more about what they actually saw, I guess the thing that was a little bit, as you mentioned, It looked like, yes, in the low recurrence score patient, there wasn't any benefit from chemo in these node-positive patients, but yet those people still had substantial risks of recurrence. Right. Well, I think that what the result of the trial, of course, showed on average adding chemotherapy was a good thing, and what they were adding was CAF. And then as broken down for the patients who had low recurrence scores, they still had a substantial risk of recurrence. As I remember, it was somewhere in the range of about 30% at 10 years. But actually, I guess they reported not just recurrences, though, but there were contralateral cancers, I think other types of deaths. So they weren't able to get, you know, just the pure recurrence data. I think it was actually closer to 40%. But again, I guess the question would be, okay, in, in spite of that or in view of that data, you know, maybe we'll need more data, but assuming further data sort of supports that. And as you mentioned, in a way, it's kind of the same theme in terms of, you know, response to chemo. But the question is, to what extent would it be useful in practice? What would be a clinical situation where you might want to get an oncotype in a patient with a no-positive tumor? Well, I think that obviously the patients who are at low risk for classic pathologic factors might be such a subset. 
So what we haven't really seen cleanly broken down from the 8814 study is these predictive effects in patients with one to three nodes versus four more nodes. There is a slide that addresses that indirectly, but it really doesn't show it graphically. And the reason why I think it doesn't show it that way is because there are relatively small numbers of patients in these studies. It's about 300 patients. And once you start, you know, using different levels of a factor and you have two different treatments, and then you begin to further break down other prognostic factors, you run out of statistical power. But I think an argument's being developed that the Oncotype DX test might be of value in predicting patients who shouldn't get chemotherapy, who have one to three nodes. I think the evidence for that is less than completely compelling. The reason for my opinion about that, which runs a little bit against some other opinions, is that there is a study that shows that patients with low numbers of nodes, one to three nodes, with low Oncotype DX scores do well, but that study actually only has five years of follow-up. And so the 5% recurrence risk looks impressive, but actually many recurrences occur after five years in ER-positive patients. And so I think that part of the reason why it looks so good is that it has relatively short follow-up, and it does have a wide error bar. We don't really have the data well broken out by nodal group in 8814. So the data may be there, but I don't think it's been convincingly presented as of yet. And I guess people trying to think forward or maybe thinking present, I mean, you know, the oncotype has always been thought of in the patient who's on the fence. So in the node negative situation, if you have a patient who's saying, look, I want chemo, you know, I want anything that's possibly done, or there's no way I'll ever take chemo, and I think people haven't usually utilized the test. And so what I heard in San Antonio, and I've heard the last few months, is, again, as you say, lower risk, like one node, for example, older patient, comorbidities, would take chemo if they had to, but, you know, wants a reason to do it, maybe that kind of situation. Does that sound like a kind of clinical scenario we might be starting with? Right. I think that that is the kind of thing... Basically, what we have is a palette of factors. And what this means is that depending on really some, you know, kind of integrated view of those factors, you can identify a patient along kind of a gradient of risk. The thing that's so interesting about the Oncotype test and which puts it on that palette in a powerful way is that the relative risk conferred, high versus low, for an Oncotype score is very strong. It's not like a small less than two factor. It's a very strong factor. And the other thing which I think is attractive about the Oncotype score is that although much of it is driven by things like proliferation, and you could argue that grade is largely driven by proliferation, so why not use grade? But the Oncotype assay is, I think, more reproducible one case to the next than grade. And so it takes that additional variable out of the equation and is one of the attractive features of the assay. You mentioned the issue when you were just talking before about the fact that patients with ER-positive disease are at risk recurrence for a long time. And it was interesting in our poll when we asked in this, again, this kind of situation, 1.3 centimeter ER-positive node-negative protein-negative tumor, how long would the patient be at substantial risk for cancer recurrence? The patient says, you know, how long do I have to be concerned about it? And what we saw there is a substantial number of surgeons in practice who said around five years, 41% to be precise. 
although the investigators almost all answered 10 to 15 years, which seems to me like nowadays is sort of the right answer. Can you talk a little bit about this issue of risk of recurrence? Well, I think one of the things that, you know, all of us who've been treating breast cancer patients for a while have really seen in disappointing circumstances is patients recur at 10 years. And if you actually look at the data, the recurrence risk is actually pretty stable over the first five years, and there's substantial recurrence risk in years five to 10. Now, this is true in ER-positive patients, not so much in ER-negative patients who have most of their recurrences within the first five years. And it's clinically relevant because adjuvant chemotherapy has its biggest impact on the early recurrences. So the late recurrences, and these are probably like slower proliferating tumors, seem to fly under the radar of cytotoxic chemotherapy, and hormonal therapies are our big weapon against these. And one of the major questions of the moment is how long to give hormonal therapies. And, of course, there is the intergroup study, which is called JMA-17, which is a letrozole after five years of tamoxifen that showed marked benefit. And there was substantial recurrence risk in that trial, and that could be reduced by extended use of an aromatase inhibitor into that period. And you actually even now incorporate that into the adjuvant online model. Well, there is a version of Adjuvant Online that addresses the question, what's the remaining risk for a patient after five years of tamoxifen, and how is that going to be impacted by giving an aromatase inhibitor? And I think, Um, you know, those numbers have really shocked a lot of people because, I mean, you tell me, would you say the rule of thumb is years five to ten for a patient whose original tumor is node negative, maybe 2% a year or 10% over five years, node positive original, 4% a year, 20% over five years. Right, that's That's right. major risk. Yeah, it is. And, you know, it's something, as I said, is not being impacted by adjuvant chemotherapy. And there are leads about what we should be doing. The idea of extending therapy beyond five years with an aromatase inhibitor. One of the major questions right now that's unanswered is what do you do when a patient completes five years of an aromatase inhibitor, should you continue? Incidentally, this is the same question we had about tamoxifen five years ago, and I think a lot of people discussed the matter with the patient, particularly if the patient was at high risk, were actually continued hormonal therapy into that second five-year period, although they would do so with a discussion with a patient saying that there wasn't really clinical trial evidence that that was a good idea. Interestingly enough, at last year's San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium, one of the more interesting trials was the ATLAS trial. And in the ATLAS trial, patients were randomized to get, a lot of them in that trial had gotten about five years of tamoxifen. They were randomized between stopping at five and going on. And what was seen in that trial is actually that in terms of recurrence risk, the patients who continue tamoxifen into that next five-year period had some modest additional reduction in the risk of recurrence. That trial isn't entirely relevant to the current situation where most patients who are postmenopausal are getting an aromatase inhibitor within the first five years. But it is interesting as a proof of principle. And the one thing I haven't seen from that trial, which is still very relevant to today, is what should we be doing for patients who you wouldn't treat with an aromatase inhibitor? Well, and those also are premenopausal these patients. These are premenopausal patients. And unfortunately, the ATLAS trial has only been, you know, in a very brief presentation 
presentation presented at this point, but one of the major questions I think many people ask is, well, did the patients who were premenopausal benefit by continuing the tamoxifen out beyond five years? And that could be one of the major important results of that trial. And certainly, although we can't be 100% for sure, based on trials like the MA17 trial looking at letrozole after tamoxifen in postmenopausal patients, you know, in our survey we see particularly in a node-positive patient, people are going to, you know, start an AI after five years in a postmenopausal patient, but then a patient who's still premenopausal in her fifth year tamoxifen may be node-positive, what do you do? Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's a consideration at this point with the data just sort of just being presented to maybe continue tamoxifen? I think that certainly... Yes, you could use that as supportive evidence because the general case seems to be that continuing tamoxifen does cause some additional benefit. You know, that whole story is just so amazing. And people remember back some years ago when actually the NCI sent out a clinical alert because there was an NSABP study that looked like more recurrences when you continued tamoxifen. The NCI sent out an alert saying, okay, everybody should stop at five years. Richard Pita, who did this study, and I've interviewed him many times over the years about this, you know, stood up, I think it was in the 2000 NIH consensus conference, and said that was premature. We don't know the answer. We're going to keep our trial going. And now it's eight years later, and as you say, now he's starting to show that actually, how do you explain that? Why the NSABP data in that one study looked like it was worse, and now that we have this data, it actually looks better? Well, I will say that, interestingly enough, knowing some of the NSABP statisticians, they were always cautious and somewhat supportive of PETO's trial. And they felt that their trial wasn't the last word on this statement. And obviously, a lot of people agreed with that because ethically, the trial went forward. There is one thing, by the way, that actually shocked me about the ATLAS trial, PETO's trial, however. It was a very large trial. I've forgotten how many patients, but it was over 10,000. It was run on a shoestring budget. In fact, there wasn't all the usual reporting. And really, there essentially was almost... It's really literally a four-page protocol. And when a patient recurred or died, you sent in your second report of what happened to the patient. So there was no toxicity reporting during the trial. And none of that was presented in San Antonio. They have only the most fragmentary record of issues related to toxicity. Yeah, that's right. And so one of the... Thrombosis, same thing. Yeah. So we don't really know the risk-benefit ratio. Right. And one of the reasons why B14, and there was also a Scottish trial at the same time, one of the disturbing features of those trials was there looked like there might be more toxicity after five years. The rate of toxicity actually went up, particularly for endometrial cancer, because the benefit looks smaller, to my eye, than the use of an aromatase inhibitor after tamoxifen. And because we don't have any toxicity data about tamoxifen after five years from the ATLAS trial, I don't think it's the last word, and I don't think it's going to cause a major shift to the use of tamoxifen in postmenopausal women. Of course, endometrial cancer is not an issue with tamoxifen in premenopausal women, and so I think it will actually have an impact in that group of women. It was interesting, you know, the statistical issue of PETO saying the reason you saw what looks like an increased recurrence rate in the NSABP studies are not enough events. We need a bigger trial, more events. That could have been just a statistical blip, and it looks like he was right. Yes. 
So I guess in terms of this issue of the patient who starts out premenopausal, gets tamoxifen, what I see a lot of oncologists talking about is then bringing in an AI. A lot of these women actually stop menstruating either from the chemotherapy they go through natural menopause. And I hear a lot about that issue of the patient who's premenopausal when she starts with the idea that at some point she's going to go on an AI when she gets postmenopausal. Does that sort of make sense to you? I think it makes sense, but it's something you have to be very cautious about. And I think all of us have seen in our clinical practice at one time or another patients who we thought were completely postmenopausal. We tested, they had postmenopausal gonadotrophin levels and estrogen levels, and yet two years later they started menstruating again. And you realized, to your horror, that you'd actually treat this woman through a critical period of relapse risk when she was probably regaining her estrogen levels. And we know that in that situation, in a premenopausal patient endocrinologically, the AIs are probably not going to work. That's right. And so, yes, certainly AIs are not indicated for women who are premenopausal because they don't actually, they're not powerful enough to actually suppress ovarian production of estrogens. So, I think there's no golden rule about when a patient is truly postmenopausal after chemotherapy. It's a matter of clinical judgment. But most of us are pretty cautious about these patients these days, and I think treat them with tamoxifen with the idea that afterwards they'll go on with an AI perhaps after either three or five years. You mentioned the issue of duration of AI therapy, and, you know, it's, of course there are trials trying to evaluate that, NSABP continuation of the MA17 study looking at more than five years of an aromatase inhibitor. But what we've seen in clinical practice, at least until those data come out, which is going to be a while, what we see in this survey is an interesting shift in the last couple of years without any phase three data to necessarily support it. And I think a lot of it's because the numbers that are out there in terms of what the risk is to these women is a lot of people just keeping the AI going. And we see a lot more of that in oncologists and, in fact, the surgeons, and a lot of them support it, particularly in the node-positive patient. What do you think a reasonable way is to approach the issue of continuation of AI in five years, particularly in the patient who's doing well on an AI? Well, I think that, again, there's no absolutely golden rule. My approach in thinking about this is very similar to what it was with tamoxifen. And that is often you're telling your patient that in theory this may be a good idea. In practice, we don't have any clinical trial evidence. I think the other thing that sometimes I add is that there are clinical trials addressing this issue. And if it was just an awful thing, the trials might be stopped. So that there's some group of women who are being monitored carefully who are getting this. That's not a complete reassurance, but it's a sign that at least some people think it's a reasonable thing to do. And there's some group of patients that's being monitored. And I think that if those trials are open for you, you should put patients on those trials. Another issue related to this question of AIs, of course, is the issue of bone and the potential risk of fracture. There's certainly on average, patients lose bone mass. And I think that the guidelines, the ASCO guidelines, are extremely important to follow. So the guidelines basically say about bone health and AIs that patients should have an on-study bone mineral density. And then they used to say that you needed to follow it on an annual basis. Even with AIs, you don't catastrophically lose bone. So I think they've been modified. At least there's been some talk about modification that if after the first 
you know, one or two bone mineral densities, that things seemed reasonably stable or there was a slow rate of loss, that you might actually do them, say, not every year, but every other year. Nonetheless, I think that it is worth watching so that patients with really excellent bone mineral densities at the beginning don't necessarily need to immediately go on to a bisphosphonate. The recommendation was for monitoring, not treatment. And there was a treatment recommendation so that when you got close to osteopenia, and I guess one of the things to point out is that bone mineral density doesn't go through a critical transition where all of a sudden you become at risk for fractures. It's a gradual thing. The higher your bone mineral density is, the less likely you're going to get a fracture. And one of, I guess, the encouraging things is that if your patient does lose bone mass, that you can actually give the patient, you know, almost all the bisphosphonate trials show that bisphosphonates oral or IV help protect bone mass so that you have a number of options for looking at that. So if you have a woman who has a normal bone density is considering an AI and says to you, what's the chance that I'm going to have a fracture as a result of this? How would you answer? Well, I would say that if you actually look at fracture rates for women with normal bone mineral densities at the beginning that stay in the normal bone mineral density range. I'm sure, I haven't actually seen the data, but I'm sure that there's no marked increase in fracture rate. Overall, across all patients, there is an increase in fracture rate, which is a strong argument for protecting bone mineral density. I guess the thing to say about bisphosphonates is that there's also the question of tolerability. And so that, you know, if a woman has any anxiety about this, I think that as long as she tolerates bisphosphonates well, the side effect rates, particularly for oral bisphosphonates, are very low. And so the idea that she might take a bisphosphonate for that purpose would be a good idea. The one thing I should say in passing, because this is a mistake that used to be often made, particularly by gynecologists, is that patients should not be being treated with raloxifene for bone mineral density issues because, of course, that's an agonist antagonist for estrogen. And there are good reasons to believe that it might actually frustrate the impact or lessen the impact of an aromatase inhibitor. So bisphosphonates are the way to go. The guidelines make that clear. One final issue about AIs. I'm curious what your take is about the fact that currently there is no statistical improvement in survival when you use an AI compared to tamoxifen. Now, of course, you could also get into the issue of an AI versus control, which wasn't looked at. You have to kind of think indirectly based on what you know about tamoxifen. It does look clearly like there are fewer recurrences with AIs compared to tamoxifen. How do you put that all together, and what do you think it means clinically? I think that it's likely that both actually have a modest survival advantage. There may be a reason why the survival advantage is less striking than the recurrence advantage. And that is that what AIs do is they really blunt very dramatically second cancers. And when these are counted in as part of the recurrence, which they often are, you have to remember tamoxifen cuts your rate of recurrence by 50%. AIs cut it by 75%. In other words, even more than tamoxifen. And so, particularly in low-risk populations, a lot of the events that are being prevented are second cancers, which are unlikely to be lethal events. So you seem to have a bigger impact on recurrence events than you do have on survival events. The evidence is compelling that taking hormonal therapy 
in postmenopausal women, if your estrogen receptor positive, lessens your risk of recurrence and improves your survival. Is that your question? Yeah, it's, you know, that I think that this debate about whether, you know, an AI causes a survival advantage compared to tamoxifen is fine. You know, it would be great if it did, but I think it's getting translated that there's no survival advantage to AI therapy. And I don't think that's right. Yes, I agree with your your concern. I mean, hormonal therapy in estrogen receptor positive patients, if it were invented today, it would make the cover of everything. It's a 40% reduction in the risk of recurrence, a 30% reduction in the risk of mortality. That's huge. And those numbers, by the way, are quite comparable with those for trastuzumab. And so, I mean, we all kind of accept it, but it is an enormous benefit for patients who are estrogen receptor positive. And not only that, but those numbers I'm quoting are at 10 years of follow-up. We don't really know what those numbers are going to be for trastuzumab yet. So the real revolution in breast cancer, you know, when we actually began to use biologically guided therapy, was really 30 years ago when we began to use the estrogen receptor. Well, plus the fact that when you talk about ER positivity, you're talking about two-thirds or more of the patients. You talk about HER2 positivity, it's 20%. So in terms of number of people affected, big difference. Oh, hormonal therapy is still the backbone of adjuvant therapy for breast cancer patients.